0: Well, hello, ladies and gentlemen, and a big welcome to EKN Nation, a brand new podcast here on the EKN Radio Network. Book it with Rob Howden. That is me, Rob Howden. And uh, this new podcast, very similar to the one that we launched last week, This Week in Carding, something new as we continue to kind of fill out the different topics, the different people we want to talk to. This is going to be a one-on-one interview show. And I don't like to use the word interview more of a conversation. We're going to, Get a chance to talk to some of the top drivers in the sport of karting, other personalities in the sport as well, maybe even outside of karting, uh, but those with a deep connection to the sport that we love. So this new one, uh, the first guest I've got, it's for me, I think, very fitting because uh, I've been doing this now for 25 years as a journalist. Uh, I launched Shifter Kart Illustrated magazine 20 years ago this month. We actually launched it at the second running of the Supercart USA Super Nationals. The guy I'm going to talk to right now has driven in, I think, 18 Super Nationals, and he was a winner in that year, 1998 in the 80cc Junior category. My first guest on Book It with Rob Howden, Mr. Matt Jaskill.
1: Matt, great to have you with me, man. Yeah, buddy. Thanks for having me, man. It's been a long
0: run, hasn't it? It
1: has been a long run, and I don't feel that old, man. <laughs>
0: yeah, and here's the thing. As I was prepping for this, and I, I take this, and I'm sure you'll take this as a compliment. You are perennially... Between eighteen and twenty-one, in my mind. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> Every time I see you, you because I've known you for so long, and and I just I don't know, think that you're thirty. Well, how old are you right now? Thirty-two? Or
1: no, I just turned thirty-four.
0: Okay, so you're thirty, but you're in my mind. You're still
1: twenty-one, right? You're so, still, you're, so am I. <laughs>
0: I, know, I feel like I feel thirty, so that's what keeps me going. But uh, you know what? Let's. I'm going to do a little lead-in and then we'll kind of come back to you to talk about your origin story, how you got in the sport, but the bottom line is um you know you've been a driver coach, uh you've been an instructor, you're a businessman, you're a skydiver, and you're you're a, you're a reality TV star, all around cool guy and badass. You know, we can go through and we will go through your career, but man, you've uh you've done a lot of things coming out of karting and like so many people uh, drivers who were at the top of the sport really you know, made that big push early to try to become a professional race car driver. You had definitely some success until of course, uh, you know, probably 2008 when the economic downturn kind of messed up a lot of guys and and the progression they were making. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. So let's talk about your origin story. Um, I'll let, I'll throw a couple things out here first and then we'll go back. So your karting career obviously getting rolling in the late, late nineties, uh, supernats race winner, um, to the point where you know you were a top driver in the pro category, super pro. Uh, you were running with the Paul Tracy Kart Racing Program with with Paul. AJ Allmendinger was there as well. Um, you were one of the guys, of course, front and center. People were like, "This okay, this is a guy we got to look at. You get invited to the Skip Barber Scholarship shootout. You end up winning a scholarship there to be able to go run in Formula Dodge, the Skip Barber Formula Dodge Series. You win three races in 2003, third in the championship. Second, um,
1: second to Matos.
0: That's to Rafael Matos. That's right. Okay, there was, you go. Second. The
1: highest finishing American, yeah.
0: Right behind Rafael Matos, who obviously worked his way all the way to IndyCar. Yep. By doing this as well, top American, which is obviously key, you end up getting selected to run for the Red Bull Driver Search Program. Right. You win that, um, which, which was obviously fantastic. And, and we'll come back after to talk about this, but I think the one thing that I w- really wish would have happened for you was, I really wish they would have taken you to Europe and actually ran you in Europe. Instead, they ran you in Formula BMW USA. Um, you had three wins, big wins though, right? Montreal, <laughs> uh, yeah. Indi- Indianapolis, that was big <laughs> uh, Formula One weekend, and then Laguna Seca. Yeah, uh, from there, and we'll go back to this, and you can touch on why you made certain deals. You ended up moving. You did a couple of Star Mazda starts. Um, you ended up winning the ASA Speed Truck Championship in two thousand and five. You ran five Indy Lights races in two thousand. Uh, and seven, including a top five at the uh, the Freedom 100. You go back to stock cars and, and win more races in 2008 and beyond. Um, bottom line is, you know, like so many guys, you didn't get the opportunity you needed. You became a professional driver coach, then had to go back and run the family business after your dad had a heart attack in 2015. A little synopsis of your career, for sure, but let's go back first and talk about how did you get started in carding? We always love asking those questions. How did you actually get started? What you know when? What was your origin story?
1: Yeah, God, and this got it'll be a this will be an emotional one for me, man. You're bringing up a lot of emotions to be honest. That's the idea. So that's, that's what we do here. Yeah, God, and and just and and it's uh, amazing to talk to you, just because I'm talking to somebody who who saw me in the in the mid 90s even into the late 90s when my yep. career my karting career started to to blossom so to speak but yeah i started um started racing motocross at the age of 5 my my dad my dad was a boat racer and um and he uh he was a successful one. He was racing like with Vic Edelbrock of, you know, Edelbrock carburetors and and the Herps family who, you know, if if you come to Vegas at all, you see terrible Herps everywhere. And, um, so my dad was racing boats and he got a, he got a test in an F1 boat, you know, one of those really fast deals. And, uh, he, the, the saying in boat racing was you, you either died or you were going to die. It was kind of a dark, you know, it was a very dangerous sport. Mm. And, um, and my mom, uh, I wasn't even born yet. And I guess my mom, walked into the uh to the shop one day and and looked at my dad and said it's either my dad had just had a bad his his first and only really bad crash sank a boat and um and it was you know scary you know could have drowned it was I guess it was fairly serious and my mom came in and said it's either me or the boat which one's it gonna be and uh that was like 83 and then a year later I was born so my dad made <laughs> terrible decisions obviously apparently <laughs> And uh so so now you fast forward about the age I was born in California and raised between California and Vegas but Vegas has been my home almost my entire life and uh, started racing motocross at the age of 5 and what was cool I mean it became you know as we were a motorhead family you know it, it started becoming pretty serious I had a brother who was racing uh, also motocross and and so um get up to the age of 10 and I'm racing like I'm racing the intermediate and expert class in 60cc and um I'm racing with guys like Bubba Stewart and stuff like that. I'm at the same track at the same time with, Pastrana and Ricky Carmichael and, and some of the biggest names still in the sport today. And I wasn't as good as those guys. I was, I actually was a little bit too, uh, aware as a young man. Like I was like, man, this is dangerous. I was getting hurt a a little bit. You know, I was pretty good rider, but I was just watching these guys, these kids like on sixties and eighties and I'm doing doubles. I'm hitting big jumps and I'm watching these guys hit triples. And I looked at my dad and I'm like, I ain't doing that. (laughs) Uh (laughs) Uh, I watched my cousin uh come up short on a jump and compound fractured his leg and that was uh really traumatizing I'm 10 years old and I'm like oh my god you know and um so it scared me so the sport scared me a little bit I was I was never an adrenaline junkie actually I was always a an athlete even as a young man and uh so my mom didn't like the motocross as much you know I got a concussion at only the age of 10 you know had a small crash and and my mom was like, look, I don't know about this. And my uncle was an engine builder in Vegas, uh, build, building engines for go-karts. My cousin was a go-kart racer. And we said, Hey, let's go try this go-kart thing. And I, I was like, ah, it's lame. You know, I'm racing dirt bikes, which I was just more fun and the girls were hotter. It was, it was just <laughs> yeah, <laughs> everything about motocross was cooler. And, um, and I get in a go-kart and I, and I'm, and I'm fast and I'm pretty quick, you know, and, and then we were doing both. I was a very, very privileged young man, you know, and, and uh, very lucky. We weren't, we weren't even wealthy. My dad was a hardworking hardwood floor installer, you know, that had a a small business in Vegas. He just, he worked his ass off, but he made good money. And so I'm racing motocross and go-karts at the same time. And, and finally my parents, and I'm, I start winning go-kart races at the local kart track, you know, and, and which was which back in the day was big field man. There's like fifteen you know junior drivers in the in the Comer class I was running or whatever, and or yep. junior I was r- racing like restricted Yamaha can and and um my cousin is teaching me how to drive. My my uncle's there with us and it was cool you know and I was winning races and it, it definitely if it, it was it felt safer. I wasn't as scared sitting on the starting line going from dirt bikes to go cars like oh, that was easy. Yep. And um and so my parents looked at me and said you got to make a choice. We can't do both. And 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 as a as you would know me, Rob, I was a very, um, beyond my years for, I was like a 50 year old man at 10. And I was like, you know, I think there's a longer career for me in, in four wheels. So, I'm gonna, <laughs> I'm gonna. so, so essentially the reason why, I, you know, I explain all that is because at the age of 10, I made a very conscious decision on my own that, okay, this is what I want to do for a living. This is what yeah. I want to make my life as, you know?
0: Well, I'll tell you, you talk about being older beyond your years, you know, it was the first, opportunities I got to really interview you was after you, you won the Supernats you know and, and knowing you during that year of 1998 uh you win the Supernats and I just I, I I remember seeing I think I still have the VHS tape and that obviously dates you and I that I have a VHS <laughs> tape of the 98 Supernats but you know the interview you would give gave was just so polished so top quality you know we see a lot of young kids come Uh, Not actually, not many, a handful of young kids with that kind of speaking ability at 14 or 13, 14 years of age. And you had that. So you make this transition you get to the, what jumped you forward to eventually running for SSC racing as one of the top junior drivers in the country?
1: Dude, cool, crazy story, you know, that, that some people will probably love to hear. So there was, um, so, so yeah, so 95, I'm racing go-karts, 96, 97. I'm just now starting to like, kind of do like the IKF races and I'm racing against some of the, the fastest, scariest, and, and actually kind of, you know, back in those days, I'm just going to be honest. They were kind of dicks. I'm racing like (laughs) Colin Fleming and Jason Bowles. And I'm like, like, these yeah. guys are not nice people <laughs> just, they were
0: they were uh, they were hardcore at the they track. were
1: just hardcore until i became a little faster and they accepted me i'm like oh these guys are cool i just have to be fast also yeah. <laughs> and so like these guys were just intimidating not 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 jerks <laughs> so uh, at times they were but i mean some of these guys were just not cool i was like man this, uh, you know i was like this very nice kid. Like I just wanted to be friends with people, you know, and, and, and I'd look at my dad and be like, man, these guys are mean. You know? I just didn't understand the world yet, but yeah. So, yeah. so like 96, 97. And then, so here's how it happened, man. So there was a famous, uh, he still is pretty famous, famous guy in the motocross world, a guy named uh, Steve Abbott steve abbott was the creator of the crusty demons of dirt video like the very Mm -hmm. famous you know for the very first ever freestyle video back in the 90s and and so in the in those days carding was just kind of up and coming like a lot of people were getting shifter cards they would do all these videos were coming out it was becoming kind of this thing and s and, and ssc and crg was becoming like a a forefront in carding. They were doing a lot of, you know, unique marketing. I mean, they were, they were ahead of their time for the game. You know, they were like the Red Bull of the day, you know? And, yeah. and so what was cool, Karting was becoming a big deal. Uh, Joe Ramos at SSC was trying to get a lot of dealers and was selling a lot of go-karts in, in places you wouldn't really think they would be. And Steve Abbott was one of them. Steve was Steve Abbott was like the biggest guy in Vegas, famous. Everybody, you know, money was good. Money's fallen from the sky in the late 90s, you know? Yep. And so he pulled a power play. This was actually really interesting. I went, I raced a CRG in 1997, privateer, you know, no support, no nothing. Yep. And then in 98... I wanted to be, I needed support to keep moving my career forward. We knew we needed to be with like the team and we tried to get on SSC. but I didn't have a name. I hadn't won anything yet. And Steve Abbott was one of SSC's like number one dealers. He was just selling go-karts like a drug dealer, just to everybody and anybody that were just ripping them around town. And so he went to see He went to SSE and said, Hey, if you don't put this kid, Matt Jaskell on your team, As like one of the support drivers, I'm going to stop selling your chassis. wow that's a hardcore move dude and a lot of people don't know that story he literally and that's i was only 14 years old and i learned what a power play in business was i'm like (laughs) oh my god you know my dad's explaining like this guy steve went and said hey i'm gonna stop selling your go karts unless you give this kid Jaskell a shot and 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 they didn't even know who i was didn't want me on the team and they're like all right fine we'll put him on the team and then i go and race the wka constructors Cup championship which was a big championship then a lot of drivers and that's when i kind of really started to know who you were and i won the championship and then that was even before the supernats that november so we win the WKA national championship in the yamaha junior class and then go to the supernats and win the freaking supernats you know and that's what <laughs> launched my career with crg <laughs>
0: and wow i think about that right that's that was really the thing that kind of put you in front of everybody in karting obviously you were the badass at that point you moved to s1 you get the gig with paul tracy uh, and his karting program
1: yep. Yep.
0: and all of a sudden you're getting invited to the skip arbor scholarship and away you go
1: yeah. And there, and, and there's drama along the way, obviously, you know, like, so in, yeah, 99, I race for CRG again. And then in 2000, I'm hanging out with Paul Tracy, Jimmy Vassar, Alex Tagliani, Patrick Carpentier. I'm even coaching these guys on the go-kart track. Cause sometimes they sucked out there on the track, you know? And, and so I remember like coaching Carpentier, like helping him out. I, I helped him out before he won his first race at, uh, Rotoma- or what was it? Mid Ohio, I think. And, um, And so, yeah, I mean, I was just, I was the guy I was working at the go-kart track. I was, I I ended up getting a job there, like right after the supernats in 1999, I'm 15 years old. I don't have a driver's license. My parents are like taking turns, driving me to the go-kart track across Las Vegas. My mom's pissed off that I'm working like 15 hour days as a 15 year old, you know? And, and so, so I just have this crazy life, you know, and and things are cool. And Paul Tracy goes, yeah, I'm going to start my own go-kart team and I want you to race for me. And that was even kind of traumatic and mind blowing like the the most famous guy in indie car racing at the time calls my father and I to his house and says, I want to come over and talk to you guys. Imagine, imagine getting that phone call. You know, your stomach yep. drops, you're like, what? Oh my God. Paul Tracy wants to see us. And we went over to his house. And that's when he like and you know told us he was going to start his go-kart team. And And, and that was cool. And then I was, I was his very first driver ever was his first driver. And then as the team start to, you know, started to build Curtis Cooksey became my teammate and Mark Pollard and, you know, these, some of these OG names, right. And then it wasn't for like a year later that, that, um, that AJ Almendinger became my teammate. And then there was drama, you know, like AJ and I did not like each other. I loved that guy, I looked up to him. And then as soon as we, we, we became teammates, it wasn't cool. <laughs> you know, he was again, really hardcore. And, yep. and I was looking forward to having this teammate and this friend. And it wasn't like that. It was, <laughs> it was like pretty hardcore cutthroat. You know, we, we, we were rivals and, and, and it wasn't fun, you know, and, uh, and then Paul and I would butt heads, you know, because Paul was helping AJ and it wasn't helping me to get into like the skip barber scholarship and he was yep. like don't worry you're younger we need to help aj first but you'll be next and um i remember quitting uh leaving paul tracy i was like you know what no forget this i'm i'm you know if you're not going to help me out th-. and there's a longer story behind that you know but but i was you know we just um again politics and drama of racing it wasn't always just fun that was the, the stuff behind the scenes that people didn't well see, you
0: know? and Patience isn't always uh, one of the attributes that young guys have.
1: Right. Yeah. And I didn't. No, absolutely not. You know, we were and I didn't know any better. It was like, oh, my God, we got to make things happen. And we're under pressure of people telling, you know, you're, you're 16 years old and people are telling you, you better make stuff happen before you get too old, you know. And, um, you know, we got passed over for the very first uh, skip barber scholarship. And we were all stressed out. Like we got to keep moving forward. We got to keep moving forward. And, uh, and, and I ended up leaving Paul's team, not not under excellent circumstances. You know, it's like, it was more, more or less kind of like, well, if you're not going to keep, if you're not going to help me, then I'm going to just try to do it on my own. And I, and I did, you know, I mean, it, Paul Tracy helped keep jumps, you know, keep launching my career. If it wasn't for Paul, I wouldn't, have been anywhere that I was moving forward because he paid for me to go racing for like two yeah. years, you know? Yeah.
0: Folks, this is uh our first edition of Book It with Rob Howden, our new conversational podcast here on the EK and Radio Network, talking with Matt Jaskell, driver who uh, has been part of the SuperCart USA program for uh, over 20 years and will once again be back behind the wheel at this upcoming Super Nationals 22. Great to have him as our first guest here on Book It. Uh, so we're talking about you kind of wrapping up the carding career, but you know you do eventually, Matt, get that scholarship to run uh, in the Formula Dodge series with Skip Barber. So it, there was that opportunity, right? You made the move to cars, the patience was there and you finally did get the opportunity.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Side note was that, you know, I drove for Paul for a couple of years and we had success, man. I mean, I finished on the podium at the super, at the super Nats as my, in, I think in my first year in super pro and I'm standing next to Scott speed in, in AJ Almendinger, you know, yeah. two of the best freaking drivers in the, in the country, you know? And, um, and so, yeah, so we, you know, we had some awesome success and, and, uh, and of, of course, just like anything in racing and Paul, you know, there was, there was drama that was difficult and there was a lot going on. So I actually, a lot of people might not even know, I made it to the skip barber carting scholarship, the, 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 first time and didn't get picked and, and got passed over by some guys that were there that were returning for their second year. Mm-hmm. And that was like, I think, uh, uh, Jason Bowles was one of them. So yep. like, I, I performed well, I was fast. But there was guys that were there for their second year and and everybody knew the thing. If you didn't get chosen in your second year, you didn't get to return. So it was kind of, again, you were in line basically, you know, so, so that was kind of a a crushing thing. Like I was like, oh man, we didn't get it. And then I got and then I was the guy that got back, you know, got asked to come back the second year. I crushed it, was the fastest guy and then got that scholarship. And then that was, yeah, that was 2003. And, and that was essentially where it was like, okay, oh my gosh, you know, we're, we're, Turning professional, you know, I I have a fifty thousand dollars scholarship. My parents don't have to pay for this. Is this is okay? This is actually going somewhere, you know. So you go racing. Obviously,
0: you you know you had confidence in your skills. You, you'd shown it uh, at the top levels of karting. You moved to uh, the Formula Dodge, which was probably. A significant one or two steps down from your 125cc yeah. you know, built moto shifter back in 2001 and
1: 2002, 50 horsepower open Hondas, yeah. and
0: then so you fall into the uh, the Formula Dodge tank on old uh, yeah. probably BF Goodrich tires or whatever they were running back then. It was yeah. a different, obviously a different, uh, different animal completely, but you but you took to it. Yeah, And like any great driver is able to uh, uh, you know, evolve and adapt to the, the car they're driving, you end up having a, obviously a great run, good battle throughout the season to come up second, as you said. But talk a little bit about what that transition was like, because there's a lot of obviously a lot of cart racers who listen to this podcast and they're thinking about making their own you know, the transition. But talk a bit about what your transition was like getting into cars.
1: Yeah. So I was very lucky in the sense that some of that, what a lot of people know me for, and I always had a a pretty cool reputation for was my adaptability was I was that guy that could literally go from, you know, from, from a go-kart to a 3,500 pound craftsman truck car in the same weekend and get around the track fast, you know, where a lot of people didn't have that ability. You know, we saw a lot of go-carters that were arguably the best go-carters in the world in the top 10 and they got into a car and just couldn't make it happen they just very true they just didn't have that that adaptability or that transition um for me you know i don't know what it was i just like to think that it was you know, some talent, you know, I just was able to adapt, but I, um, I also, again, I didn't come from money and it was always a little bit stress. I actually, when I was getting into a, this, the barber Dodge car, I was like, okay, this is more expensive. You know, like if, if I crash a go-kart, which I never did, you know, hardly ever did, it was 350 to $500 in crash damage. If I crash a skip barber car, we're looking at like 5k, you know, or more, you know, potentially. And, And it was like, oh man, this is serious, you know? And, and so I was a little bit nervous. I was timid. I was nervous. Um, but uh, yeah, I don't, I honestly don't know where that adaptability came from. I know it was just like the way I was taught. I was always very smooth, kind of let the car come to me. Um, I, you know, I get, again, going by feel, uh, like a guy like Matos, he would be faster than me on a lot of days, but he was also the fastest into the fence, you know, if you know <laughs> what I'm saying. Like he, yeah. he would push really hard where I, you know, I might, you know, I might not have always been, you know, I would drive it behind that guy and be like, God, this guy is fast. He was just one of those few guys that like, I just couldn't, you know, get around sometimes, but I was always this sm- more consistent, more smooth, you know, finish, finish all the races kind of thing. And I think that's maybe what helped my transition was just a little bit, honestly, sat, you know, un- unfortunately, unfortunately, that fear of not being able to have the money to pay for the crash damage and needing to just get into it a little carefully, you know?
0: Well, I don't think it would, it would be a stretch then to say that the people that obviously were there to select the Red Bull driver search drivers, um you know, they would have saw that. Uh, yeah, so obviously, one of the things that was part of your your CV, kind of your makeup was here's a guy that's not going to wreck cars. And we like that. Give me. Give me some insight into the mindset change, or how you felt when you were uh, selected by the Red Bull guys.
1: Yeah, man, that was an emotional. That was again an emotional roller coaster. I I had left Paul Tracy, so I left Paul Tracy, and I think from the two thousand two ended the two thousand two season, finished on the podium. But again, there was some turmoil in the team, you know, about about what we were going to do moving forward, career stuff, Almendinger, and and you know, and it was like, okay, we're going to go do something else. And I, I, uh, funny enough, end up racing for Tom Kutcher under, you know, team extreme. And so that was in 2003 I'm running the season and, um, and you know, crazy how life happens. I, we were trying, I didn't, again, I got passed over for Red Bull the first year, the first ever year of Red Bull was Scott speed and, uh, Phil Giebler, Pat, uh, Pat long, uh, you know, clearly guys that were above me, In that world. But uh, Michael Abadi got chosen and I didn't. And he and I were at the exact same level. You know, we were, you know, local rivals Mm -hmm. in Vegas. and And I considered myself to be better at most times, you know, and, and, and he got picked and not me. And I was, again, I was distraught. I was like, Oh, man, you know, I didn't, I got passed over again. And so I'm running the, uh, the pro tour and and I finished second. I I finished second behind, I think Ron white that year, which was solid. You know, the guy had, you know, crazy good equipment and, and we did too, but you know, he had a little edge on everybody and, um, Funny thing happened in in August of of 2003. There was this massive flood in Vegas. Uh, That actually, it was like a state of emergency flood of all things in Vegas. It killed some people, and my father and I, we were living in Vegas, and uh, we were living behind my cousin's house. Which, again, long story, you know, with family stuff and we had sold our house in Vegas. My mom had moved to Utah and my dad and I are living in Vegas in a little like one bedroom studio apartment. And we lose everything. We I'm not even exaggerating. We lost everything we had in a flood. And it was the weekend before I had to head to Oklahoma for the final race of the year. And, um, and I just remember being like, my God, you know, like we saved some of my driving gear. We literally lost everything like photos of me as a child from racing. I mean, I had no idea. Yeah, man. This was, uh, yeah. So August, 2003, uh, state of emergency flash floods in Vegas. People died. Uh, seven people died. It was this crazy thing. You know, there, it's all documented in history. And I ended up like staying at a friend's house. Cause we lost, we lost where we were living. I mean, it was, it was terrible. It was this terrible, terrible thing. And, um, and I had to fly out to go to a race a day later. And I go to – and we were waiting for the phone call to see if I had made the cut to even go do the runoff for, for the Red Bull program <laughs> and, and not knowing if I was going to get it. I go to Oklahoma. And I finished second. I uh, have this epic battle with Ron White. I finished second, and I think I even won Rookie of the Year. I didn't get any – I ran Super Pro the year before, but only for the Super Nats and finished third. So I had not run a full season in Super Pro. So I get Rookie of the Year and and uh, was and the Skip bar. So I'm racing go-karts, racing Skip Barber at the same time, racing go-karts for Tom Kutcher. And I just lost everything in a flood at home. I finished the race, and I get a – I'm in the trailer. I'll never forget it, man. I'm in the trailer, and I get a phone call from Maria Genacci, who owned the Maxim Sports Group, who was kind of like heading up the Red Bull program. That was her program. Yeah, that was her program. And she calls me and goes, hey, Matt, I just want to let you know you were selected to go to the runoff for Red Bull. And I cried. I was in the trailer. I was like, man. Wow. You know, finally, you know. And I get on an airplane to go home, and it hit me. And I'm a teenager, man, and, I, and it hits me. And I was like, "Oh shit, I don't have a place to go when I get home." I literally call my father. He wasn't even at the race, you know. He was in Vegas, and I, I call my dad and I go, "Dad, what are we, what are we doing? Where do I go?" And he was like, "Hey, don't worry. The, you know, the the JW Marriott is giving people rooms, you know, for displaced people." And I lived in a my dad and I lived in a hotel room for a year until we were able to try to buy a house later that year and that was all happening during the red bull stuff uh and then and then eventually yes i get i go to sebring florida i reconnect with travis pastrana who knew me from the 90s of motocross he was there trying to get into four wheels he was racing first he wasn't even a red bull athlete he was a uh, Sobe energy drink guy, I think, at the time, and and he sits down next to me. He's like, "I recognize your name. How do I know you?" I'm like, "Yeah, dude." And he, and he goes, hey, I'm Travis Pastrana." I'm like, "Yeah, dude. I know who you yeah, are. We know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, dude. I know." And he, and then, so we start chatting and, and talk about Vegas motocross. He's like, "Oh man, that's how I that's how I know you. All right, I've seen you before." And um and so this is 2000, you know, late 2003, and I and I was the fastest. I I I crushed everybody, and it was in the Skip Barber cars that we were using for the runoff, and that was just to narrow it down. Down to the six guys that got to go to Portugal to test in the F3 car, uh were, you know, as you know, I eventually got the, the ride. So
0: Yeah, that's uh, you know, it's like I said this is the origin story I was looking for, right? I, I know it's to- a
1: lot, I'm sorry, know, you know. <laughs> but
0: listen, this is this is it. This is the storyline that that we're trying to find you know? here. Yeah. This is this is perfect. And it's about getting opportunities. It's about being in the right place. You are obviously going through something unbelievable back home. You come and are still able to step it up and do well at what was the Scuza World Finals back then, the final round of the Promoto Tour, Um, and then you step up with it when, when you got the opportunity. And that's what it takes. It takes you to step up when the opportunity is given to you. You you win the Red Bull Scholarship. You're part of this amazing, you know, global program, and they put you. In Formula BMW USA,
1: which, which was a bit crushing, actually it was a bit upsetting. Yeah,
0: well, and, and that that was the one thing because they, you know, they put guys in different Formula Renault, whatever it may be, over in Europe. And if you were at and the reason why I brought this up at the start, you know, I went with Maria and Chris Akonimaki and Dutch Mandel from Auto Week, I actually went over to the Red Bull uh, Saber launch the one year yeah. to, to to see all the Red Bull driver search guys, the scholarship drivers, and. You obviously weren't there, but the other guys were there because they were able to be at the Red Bull facility and train there. And that was—I always
1: thought that was kind of an odd thing that that you weren't brought over there. There's a story behind it, man. Uh, did you want to tell it? Yeah, and, and a lot. And this is like straight from like uh, Danny Sullivan, man. Like so, this is so this is what happens, man. Six of us go to Portugal. And it's 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 Colin Fleming and Scott Speed. Scott has already had the contract. So he's already just re-upping his contract, but he was still there to like do the runoff kind of thing, you know? Um so he wasn't one of the six, but he was there like testing with us. So it's it's Colin Fleming, myself, uh, and and a, a, an interesting thing a lot of people probably don't even know. Scott and Colin had the same manager. The freaking manager was the manager for U2 or something at the time, I think. And uh so Colin and Colin and Scott's sharing the same manager. It's myself. It's Dominique Clausens, yep. um, Travis Firing, uh, uh, Joe Diagostino and uh, David Yurka. I think that's it, right? I think that was all the guys. I believe so. I think that was it. And so we go, and Red Bull only wanted Colin and Dominique Clausens. Dominique and I are, are very good friends to this day, funny enough. We've reconnected in the last two years. And the guy's, you know, like living, living the dream, traveling, doing a lot of like videography stuff. But, anyways, we even talked about it. And he was pretty open about it as well. He was bringing money. So Dominic, Dominic, you know, a lot of people knew the guy, you know, was, was a lucky, you know, his family had some money taking care of him. And so he was subsidizing his ride and they weren't interested in me. They weren't interested in me at all. Red Bull didn't want me. They didn't care about me. I was just there in the runoff and they didn't expect me to do as well as I did. And here's what happens. I go out there in the F3 car and I, and I did well. I killed it, never put a wheel wrong, was fast, couple tents off of Colin who had already been racing, um Dominique, who took a bunch of money and went over there and tested for like three days in an f three car and I was pissed. I was actually like you know again, po- politics I was like, this isn't fair, he's going over there to test it should be allowed and and so I went into it and i and I just got mad, I got pissed off, and i drove drove my ass off, and then it was all documented. And they were like, "Oh, great! What do we do with this Jaskol guy? He if we don't do something, everybody's gonna be like, wait a minute, this isn't right.' I was fast. I was one of the fastest guys there. And the reason I didn't go to Europe was Red Bull was. It was almost like a consolation prize. It was that those were the actual words used. Was all right. Well, he went too fast. We didn't expect him to, but let's we're gonna put him in form of the BMW America. We're not even gonna bring him over to Europe. And then the team, the chosen team, was this championship winning." Um, Austrian team. Of course, I'm going to race with them, right? No, they put me with a brand new team that's never even raced before, and they were like college students, and they were just, uh, you know, starting a team. And Red Bull goes, "Yeah, let's put him with that team." And I know it sounds traumatic and crazy, but that was the reality of it. They, I was a, they, it was almost like, okay, fine, we're just going to put him over there, and he won't do very well. We're going to put him with a new team that's never even raced before, and, and we won't have to worry about it. And then make a long story long, I go and and do – I finish on the podium nine out of 14 races with three mechanical DNFs. I I win at the only two American formula one races or North American formula one races as an American in the formula one driver search program. You know, it was, and now again, once, Oh, and then, uh, because the team screwed up, you know, like Red Bull was hardcore helmet, Marco. So my team, uh, they, they made a mistake. We had a mechanical and Red Bull was like, you have to give him a free race, you know, on your dollar. So the team owned a formula Renault car, they take me. I've never driven a Formula Renault, and Red Bull's like make him go race Formula Renault in a street course at the Molson Indy, and From I go win, and I go yep. win the thing.
0: Yeah, <laughs> well, that up. was. And the team was Auto Technica. Was it it was
1: Team Autotechnica. Amazing really? guys, but they yeah. were new. They were these college. college they team. were. It was, a
0: never, it was a college program. Yep, it
1: was they a, a college – and everybody was like, wait a minute. What? So that's what I mean, man. There was all these politics behind the scenes that nobody knows. It was I- – I'm not going to just say sabotage, but that's what – Red Bull was not setting me up for success. They purposely chose a team like, OK, there was the champion – world championship Austrian team out of Austria where Red Bull's based out of the team that everybody was like, Oh yeah, Matt's going to be with that team. And Red Bull went, now we're going to put him with auto technica. And everybody was like, wait, what, why would you do that? The team had never taken a competitive green flag in professional motorsports until, until the Red Bull program. And it, and you know what, they were amazing guys, but it showed, you know, there was a lot of mistakes. There was a lot of mistakes made and things happened. And so anyways,
0: it's funny with you look, cause I see Enrico all the time. He's now, he's a well-respected engineer in sports car racing now like, yeah, you're right. Right. They, they were brand new they were right out of college yeah right. Out of right, un- right university yeah.
1: Yep. college kids so that's what i mean man like crazy life right crazy drama and wow. and so i do well i don't win the championship you know I, we had a few mechanical d de- i had one mistake all out of 14 races i clipped a wall i think at cleveland and, and didn't finish but i was on the podium nine races well and well leading two events we had mechanical mechanical and
0: Obviously, because you don't win the championship, it gives them really easy, an easy...
1: And and again, once again, that was drama. Like 2004, end of the season. I do everything I'm supposed to do. I win races. I I, kill, I, I win by the largest margin of victory in in the history of Red Bull at the. Or I'm sorry, of of Formula BMW at the time. Seven seconds, you know, over guys like Hinchcliffe and you know some some badass drivers yep. in uh, Laguna Seca. And I was actually, it's funny. There's fo- there back then. I was on the podium with this very distraught look on my face, standing P one. Knowing that, okay, Red Bull's going to try to use this against me that we didn't win the championship, you know, so so they bring me back overseas for the quote unquote runoff. And they told me I was already signed. They're like, great job. You did great. And, um, and, and they tell me I'm, I'm moving on to Formula Renault Euro series to move to Europe. They actually had me get an apartment in Germany. I'm talking full nine yards like, oh, yeah, they signed me to a team and every dude, everything. I was moving to Germany. I had a German girlfriend. We were already planning our move over over there they introduce me they tell me the team i'm racing for and then i go do the runoff and i and i and i was all stressed out i was like something's wrong man i smell if something's not right and there was some something weird was going on and they were like oh well we want you to come back and 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 i was like wait a minute come back and do the runoff i've already got the contract why would i do the run oh no 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 it's just for extra seat time don't worry And they and but it was televised. They were like doing a reality show out of it at the time, you know. And they wanted to put me back through the program or through the runoff kind of thing. And I was like, something's not right, you know. Uh And I and I go do it again. I don't put a wheel wrong, but but just like a lot of people know in racing, man, there was some BS. They were like trying to send me out on old tires and. And I was like, no, 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 I won't do it. Nope, this is BS. And like, so we, we put on different tires. I go out there and I'm like two tenths faster than the year before. And I'm like, okay, everything's fine. And I see Danny, and this is, man, this was like out of a movie, man. Like Danny Sullivan standing up on a pit wall with Thomas Uberall and Helmut Marco, the, the, the leaders of the Red Bull program, and they're arguing. And Danny Sullivan's like, it's intense. And I, and I know something's going on, you know, just when you know you, when you know, you know, I have this feeling in my stomach and I'm like, okay, something's not, something's just not right. And Danny comes and I watch Danny come down and, and he pulls me aside and he goes, Hey man, I need to talk to you. And I go, okay. And he pulls me in the semi truck alone, separate. And he goes, and he, and even Danny was kind of like, you know, just staring off and he goes, Hey man, they're letting you go. And I, and I look at him like screw you Danny come on where, where are we going to dinner tonight man and he goes wow. no man they're letting you go they're terminating your contract and um this was October 14th one day before my 19th birthday
0: <laughs> that's uh that's tough for someone to have to internalize and and, and make a move from there what you know
1: what <laughs> what, what do you do uh you, uh you know so no joke I get on an airplane and now I I would honest to god man I would say I had a bit of a mental breakdown. I remember it's my birthday, I'm flying home, I just got fired, it's October and I don't know what I'm doing. I'm flying to New York to go see my girlfriend who has packed up her apartment thinking we're moving to Germany together. <laughs> oh, and I'm and I get on a plane dude and I'll never forget it's like I was like catatonic man. I was like floating like I didn't even call my parents. I didn't call. I had a manager, Fernando Avaloni, who's really well known. He's married to like you know Christian Fittipaldi's sister, and and so like uh, you know I'm I'm in the world, man. I'm like on my way yep. to Formula One, man. Life is you know I'm a rock star. Everything's good, and it just came crashing down all in a wow. matter of 24 hours. And it was like, oh my god, well, what am I going to do with my life?
0: Well, I- <laughs> it's pretty. It's pretty easy to see why the motivation continues to burn within you to. To keep going, to keep driving, to keep doing something, right? Yeah. And I never, it's it's unfinished business.
1: Yeah. Never give up, right? I mean, I, I, and I, God, I just didn't know, I didn't know what to do. I flew back to the US and I was like, it's over, it's over. And, and I didn't give up. It was just like, okay, now what? And that's how we just started scrambling. And to be honest, man, I don't remember every little detail because it was, it was traumatic as a young man, you know, like 19, going on 20 years old. And I'm just like, my God. And and thinking, and I remember telling people that story. Like I I have been to the top, where there was Danny Sullivan was on Wind Tunnel with Dave Despain saying that, yeah, I think Jaskul's got the the, is the best well rounded package to be the next American Formula One driver. You know, I mean, like I was one of the favorites, even over Scott Speed at times. You know, and and um. And it just didn't happen, and it just all fell apart just like that, that fast, you know. And so I come back to America, and that's how I ended up in uh, in in um, Star Mazda for Richie Hearn. Richie Hearn puts me in his car. I show up at Sebring at last, you know, because we were scrambling through November, through December, through the holidays. Like, what am I going to do? Everybody's deals are sewn up. I have no of money. Yeah. I have no way to raise money this late in the I, – I haven't had to raise money in the last couple of years because I've been living on scholarships and free rides. you know. So we didn't even really know how to raise the money to be honest. And, um, and so I get into a Star Mazda ride. I had a, a friend in, in Vegas, this uh, guy that owned like an air conditioning company that knew me since I was a kid in go-karts, and he bankrolled me for a little bit. So we go do Star Mazda. We show up. And I finished second to Rafael Matos, who who was in his second year with like a, a you know, a big team. And so Ocean, we were, yeah. we were Ocean, a, Tomo. Ocean Tomo and we're, Ocean a little Tomo. we're on yeah. a shoestring budget, you know, no testing or nothing with Richie Hearn. Boom. I finished second at Sebring. Uh, Graham Rahal was third. I think uh, Hinchcliffe was in the field. Marco Andretti, the, a lot of a lot. Of, it was a huge year, you know, for Star Mazda. And then we go to the second race of the year. I finished on the podium again. And now I'm out of money. And my sponsor goes, Hey man, I'm sorry, I can't afford to go to the next race. And that again was drama. Like Richie's like, Well, what are we going to do? I'll try to, you know, we're, we were second in the championship, leading the rookie of the year, kind of the the last minute entry into the championship, anyways. And now I have no money. And you got to stop. And I got to stop. And it's just like, (laughs) Jesus Christ. Oh man. I know, right? It's like, what do I do now? And then I end up getting into this ASA speed truck ride. And again, by total chance, my cousin, was supposed to have god rest his soul he was an up-and-coming nascar driver that died in a car accident but that's not how i got he died a year later but he was slated to drive this speed truck that's kind of like a craftsman a junior craftsman truck car kind of thing and um my dad and I are like well open wheels not working out we just got to keep you in a seat so we go to do a test in this stock car and I've never even driven on an oval never even been on an oval ever I've never been in a stock never been in a cl- never been in a fendered body car ever and i show up to irwindale california half mile oval and i finish second and the team was just giving, i even had to pay for the ride man it was like it was like 5 grand to get us in the wow. seat I had to come up with that money to buy the seat cuz they were like, "Well, we're going to run your cousin in the championship, blah blah blah, but we'll give you a shot." And so I run and I finish second and they're like, "Oh." And so and I'm a rookie and I'm like, "Oh, I'm leading the rookie of the year points in the first race, you know." And second and now we're going to Vegas, the whole the hometown race and they're like, "Okay, kid, we'll give you one more race." And I had to write another check. I write another check, I go to the Vegas race and I win it and and they tore the checkup and this this good old country boy who owns the team who owned the team who i still talked to to this day was like all right kid we're gonna give you the ride you get you got you got the deal man <laughs> so, so so it's just like again oh, and, 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 and no and then during that year i celebrate my 21st birthday i become the the, the championship was a big was a big deal it was televised yeah. There was there was 30 drivers every single race a lot of good names Um, And I became the first rookie in the 10-year history of the championship to win the title. And and then 06, it kind of – again, typical to to money and life and politics. The team didn't want to move up to a bigger car. They wanted to stay in that championship, and I couldn't. I just won the rookie of the year. I can't stay. I got to move forward. Right. So now we're, now we're scrambling yet again. And in 2006, my dad and I go, well, we just better do it on our own. So we, we take some money. Money was good at the time. We buy our, we essentially buy our own cars and start going super late model racing. And I fumble around doing that for a little bit in 06 and 07. And then I get an Indy lights ride for a few races show. And now I'm this guy that's racing go-karts, Indy lights, (laughs) <laughs> um, I, I get, I get into the craftsman truck, uh, Jack Roush gong show that was televised on discovery channel at the time. I mean, I really was the guy that was just doing everything. I was just trying to get my ass in any seat. And I was trying to prove myself that cause I was literally winning a go-kart race on one night, and then going into a, a stock car and winning a stock car race the next night, and then driving an Indy Lights car and qualifying in the top five at St. Pete on a street course. I mean, I was doing everything, and I was trying to be like, "Look, just give, give me a ride. I can drive anything," you know. And um, and then yeah, and then in 2007, all that's good. And then it it, it got noticed. Uh, Cunningham Motorsports, which was the team for um, Roger Penske. It was part of Roger Penske's driver development program. They call me up and they go, we want to sign you to a driver development program. ARCA, this, that, through Roger Penske. And it was kind of like, whoa, this is, okay, this is big. Things are moving back in the right direction again. And then the economy collapses in 2008. That program disappears. My stock car sponsors disappear. House goes into foreclosure. Family's going to lose everything. And life goes on a different journey. (laughs) Wow.
0: Wow. Uh, yeah. Tangents back and forth. It's interesting. You bring up the Indy Lights program. I know you ran with Michael Crawford Motorsports and, uh, Michael's a guy, he and I talk about you once a year, at least. And he's, he's always said that, man, you were just one of the best guys he's ever had run for him of the many guys that went through his program and that he would put you in a seat at any time.
1: He was. And that's, he was such. He's an, a great guy. He's. I would honestly call that guy one of my best friends. He was. He yep. was such an amazing guy. You know, too honest for motorsports. Like he was just. Very true. <laughs> he was just such a real honest guy, man. And when he put me in his Indy Lights car in 2007, he did it for nothing. He took huge risks, man. This guy put me in an Indy Lights car with no crash damage. This guy knew that I had no money if I crashed the car, but he believed in me and wanted me to, so we go to St. Pete, never driven an Indy Lights car, did a little bit, a very, very limited testing because we didn't have money. And I qualify fifth. And once again, I'm racing the championship with big name drivers in 2007. Okay. I mean, every, all the best drivers in the in the country are racing Indy Lights and I qualify fifth. And, and, you know, we, we struggled a little bit. The car wasn't that good. Michael would be the first to tell you that. And, um, you know, but I brought it home in one piece, you know, we, I think we were like 10th, you know, kind of got, you know, bound. it was, it was an aggressive championship to say the least getting pounded Agreed. around and yeah. I mean I, I literally was crossing the finish line with with $10,000 in crash damage but still driving the car that it was like a, it was, it was, it was like bumper cars out there. It was, it was overly aggressive. It was crazy. And and we were winning just enough prize money to pay for the dents and dings and scratches on the car, every race. And, um, but we kept moving forward. And then we go to Indy, which was a big deal to race at Indy, obviously, you know, and I, I had won there in 2004 for Red Bull, which to be an American to win at Indy is obviously a big deal emotionally and, and for your career. And so now it's, it's a few years later, I'm returning back to the speedway on the oval I had a chance to become the only driver to win on both the road course and the oval, which was kind of a cool little story at the time. And, um, and uh, again, there's, there's 27 cars in the field for this Indy lights. And, and, and uh, Michael has a, a, a car that's just not very good on the ovals they have no uh wind tunnel time they have no budget to make the car as fast as like the sam schmidt cars the, you you were racing against uh chip ganassi cars Andretti cars um sam schmidt cars i mean you know, like these guys were all you know had cars in the indy lights championship and they were badass cars with huge budgets yep. so i show up and i ran third Almost the entire race with a teammate who was a very competent driver driving back in you know seventeenth or something. The the car was a a fifteenth place car at best, and we drove it up to the front, you know. And and my and I'll never forget this. Michael Crawford and he'll tell you the story too was jumping up and down on his pit box with his hands in the air, going, "My car's up in third, yeah." <laughs> um, it was the best. It was the best performance his car had done in the last you know forever. You know, like in. And so that was cool, you know. We finished it up, and and there, um, and, you know, we we kept the car clean, and and it honestly, probably could have had a top three or better, but because of like yellow flags and rain, rain kept coming, and this and that. You know, we got we kind of got kind of got shuffled back in on a, a restart or something, and ended up fifth, and um, yeah, and then and then like I said, we were moving forward, even trying to put together an Indy five hundred deal, like in two thousand eight, and then the economy collapsed, and it and, and it hurt everybody. You know, obviously, it wasn't like some. I, I'm not trying to ever, you know, say some sad story. It was just for me though, it was, it hit really hard. You know, I was living in Las Vegas, you know, it, Las Vegas was the hardest hit city in all of the country when the economic collapse hit for, for my dad's business, for housing, for everything. It hit us, it hit us exceptionally hard, you know?
0: Well, and again, that's, that's part of the journey for so many people. You never, you never know when you're going to get hit by what, and you got to bounce back and, and bob and weave and, uh, folks stick with us. We're going to come back with Matt Jaskell here on the inaugural episode of Book It with Rob Howden. We've talked a lot about some Matt working his way through cars and, and kind of getting to that point where that 2008 economic collapse really uh, put a, such an end to what was at that point his racing dreams. We're going to come back and talk a little bit about where he went from there, how he kind of rolled up. and then We're also going to talk about his most recent adventure when he was part of the, uh, the reality show on ABC Castaways. Stick with us. More to come here on Book It with Rob Howden. If
2: you want to drive the best, drive a CRG. Our countless race wins and championships prove this fact, including taking the KZ Finals at the SCU's Super Nationals and the CIK World Championships in both 2016 and 2017. Our material is second to none. After years of independent American importers, CRG is now managed directly by the factory and run out of our state-of-the-art headquarters in Texas. CRG Nordam is the American arm of the CRG factory in Italy, and we're serious about success. We stock a wide variety of parts in all of our chassis, from the CRG Hero for the mini-categories, to the Heron for Taggers, the Road Rebel for gearbox competition, and the new FS4, which has been designed specifically for American 4-cycle Briggs Racing. If you're ready to step up to the national level, do it with a factory race team that competes across the USA. CRG Nordam is a full factory effort with the best personnel and the finest equipment. We're serious about winning, and you should be too.
0: Welcome back to the EKN Radio Network. Thank you so much, folks, for tuning in to the first edition of Book It! With me, Rob Howden, my first guest, Matt Jasco, longtime supercarts USA racer, but also a driver who uh, got to uh, very, very close to potentially becoming uh, an American in Formula One. Uh, Matt, we talked a lot about you coming through the ranks, the ups and downs you had, the opportunities you were get, you were able to get and lost and got again, a lot of your successes. Obviously, we talked about the car, the, the racing career. At one point, you said to yourself, you know what? I gotta make it. I gotta make a different move in a different direction. When was that, and kind of, and where did you go? Yeah, man. That god.
1: It makes sorry. It makes me emotional, man. Just I can like imagine. Yeah. Thinking about life, man. Like so, 2008, the economy collapses, and uh, and it it really didn't happen until like 2009. Late 2008, we still had the stock car team, and things were still kind of happening. And I actually didn't race the Supernats for the first time ever since 1997 and i was upset it was the first time ever since 97 that i didn't race the supernats because we didn't really have the money i was still trying to finish up the championship and in the stock car deal and um and and so i i was i didn't race the supernats which i was bummed about and and so then, then 2009. That's when every, that's when we actually got like the foreclosure notice on the house. My dad's business is going bankrupt. Like sh- you know, shit's just falling apart. You know, I had a spon- I had a couple of big sponsors. When I say big, a couple of sponsors that were bankrolling the the stock car program, which wasn't a lot of money, you know. And yep. but w- but we couldn't afford to come out of pocket for it. And. And then my dad and I look at each other and like, man, it's it's time to close shop. You know, we got to we got to we had to we had to downsize my dad's wood shop to try to stay alive. We we sold the race cars. I got lucky, ironically enough, man. And uh, not to get off on a tangent on a side note, but I sold the team to Dusty Davis's sponsor, Dusty Davis, who was a big name in karting at the time. Uh, you yep. know D- Dusty very well. Um, Dusty was coming up into cars and. It was all – and man, just to make a long story long, it was all part of a tax fraud thing. So Vision Airlines was this airline company out of Vegas, um, and, and Dusty was lucky to get some seat time out of it. But man, it was – there was something going on that we, you, know, you, kind, you kind of knew there was a lot of money being spent in the midst of an economic collapse. But again, uh, Vision Airlines buys all my equipment from me, and my dad and I get lucky. We sell all of our stock car equipment in the midst of an economic collapse for top dollar. You know, oh, so wow. so we didn't make money, but we didn't lose everything. You know, so we actually like you know almost broke even basically. So we put a we put some money back in our pockets. I mean, I'm not i I'm not, a sh- I'm not I'll, I'll share the number. Um, I had two like fully built, um you know NASCAR super late models, badass cars, uh motors, you know equipment, and I think the price tag on everything was like ninety thousand dollars. You know and and that was and again, we had more than that invested into, of it, course right? yeah, one hundred and fifty yeah. plus grand, but yeah. we didn't we thought, oh my god we're going to lose everything you know so we were able to take that money and um and and to kind of stay out of it, it that money went right into my dad's business into the wood shop yeah. to keep it afloat uh, for literally making payroll and paying the rent for the wood shop, so we didn't lose the wood business, which support you know supported the family and paid the house payments and stuff of like that. So, so, so we sell everything to Dusty Davis's sponsor and that we won't go there, but that ended up being a whole story later on, but, uh, <laughs> yeah, which was pretty crazy, but he got to go do some racing. He ended up making it to Craftsman truck for a minute, but anyway, so, so in 2009, we sell everything and yeah, man, I was disenchanted would be the word. Like there's every it, life kind of stopped. And I was like, and I was dating this girl, um, for, for a long time. Um, her name was Christy and we, we were dating for like four years or more at the time And again, life was falling apart for everybody, you know, like it was like economic collapse. And now I'm like, okay, I need to get a job. And, and then her father dies suddenly in his sleep of a heart attack, 49 years old, you know, and this, and this girl's my, you know, we've been serious. We've been living together, you know, for like damn near three years. And her father has a heart attack and they're, and they're going to lose their, it's in his name. And they, there's no life insurance policy. Things were just happening, man, all at once, you know? And it was like, okay, I got to get a job. So I start working at, at exotics racing, which was like the racing school in Vegas and yep. And and I'm doing that for a little bit, and I was upset, man. I was literally just burnt out. I just couldn't stand it. I didn't. I couldn't stand that I was sitting right seat in a car, getting tossed around every day to try to make some money. And I was like, I gotta, I gotta do something different. And so I start doing triathlons, which is crazy, right? I start doing triathlons, thinking maybe I can become a professional triathlete or something. Just I just got to do something. To, I have to race, even if it's not a car. I have to yeah. compete. I have to be doing something with my life, and and not just sitting right seat in a car, you know. And so I end up getting a job with Hammer Nutrition. The owner of Hammer Nutrition I find out in 2010 is racing go-karts and I'm like, "Oh, and I call Tom Kutcher freaking out one day. I'm like, "Dude, you don't understand, man. I do triathlons and this and that and I I use the product. You got to get me. You got to introduce me." And he's like, "All right, jaskel, calm down. Take a breath." He's like, "I'll get you I'll get you a, you know, a phone call." So he introduces me, uh, Tom Kutcher introduces me to the owner of Hammer Nutrition. I ended up becoming his private driver coach in karting and then the guy offers me a job in 2010. He goes, "Hey, man, you want to work for me?" And I ended up becoming a professional triathlete basically. I was paid to drive the Hammer Nutrition semi-rig to triathlons. And I was I was like a expo, you know, I did the expo and set up the events, I was a product specialist, I competed in triathlons. And all during this time I would still do some karting. He was sponsoring me, Hammer was helping me and I would do a few races here and there. I would do the Supernats every year um and even still have some good showings and good runs, well, you know. Yeah, let me
0: let me bring that up. And that's the yeah. crazy thing about the fact that here you are, you know, focusing on cars and then trying to figure out what your life's, you know, how your life how you're going to how you're going to focus your life, how you're going to get back to where you need to be. You, you go triathlon racing, you work with Hammer Nutrition, but You go to the 2010 Super Nationals with Hammer. You qualify third in the (laughs) KZ2 ahead of Rick Driesen, ahead of Anthony Abbas,
1: ahead of Marco Artigo. I know. Like you're in front of all the factory drivers. And I hadn't been in, and I had not raced a go kart in about a year, basically. Exactly.
0: Yeah, it's, it's just you finished what well. I've got. I've got the notes here. You finished f- fifth, second, and fifth in the heats. Yeah, all fight third. You finish seventh in the main. Like that's
1: and the again, and that was drama too. They like detuned the motor because everybody was complaining. Like, what the hell? Why is Jaskul got better motors? Texav and people were like he doesn't. Oh my god! And and there was like a bunch of drama that went down in the pits because Sav kind of like detuned the carburetor. And I'm out there like bah, 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 bah. The motor's uh... misfiring, and I still finish seventh just off the podium. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and that, dude, that was always kind of my reputation, which I'm proud of to this day, was I was the guy that could literally not drive a go-kart for a year, show up to the biggest go-kart race in the world with world champions, and outdrive them, you know, and out-qualify them, out yeah, them, you know. Another
0: example, two years ago, 2016, you come out, you qualify in KZ2 again, or KZ, yeah. you qualify seventh, ahead to Ducanto. <laughs> And Jonathan
1: Tanon. I know
0: you
1: were, were three hundreds behind Gary Carlton. I'm and I'm passing Tanon for fifth place in the heat race, and we blew a motor, and that was and that was that. Yeah, and and then the the, the weekend went downhill. But I, uh, there you go. Even you know, two thousand, just two years ago, I show up and I'm still quick, and I still and I remember people going, "Oh, oh shit, Jaskul can still drive." <laughs> yeah. Well, okay. So let's let's jump forward a little bit, and, and I don't want
0: to. Uh, this is obviously going to. Uh, tug at the heartstrings a little bit but you know one of the you know you ended up becoming the chief instructor at dream racing 2012 uh, yep yep 2012 obviously you do the triathlon I, thing yeah, I, think I you, leave, you I still hammer have the nutrition. connection with hammer do you not or? yeah
1: yeah no yeah hammer nutrition and i i, I parted ways in a good way he, he i said hey man i got an offer to go back into doing some motorsport stuff with a racing school the only reason i did it was because there was potential that dream racing was going to like start a race team and stuff so i tell hammer I tell him, Hey, man, I'm going to go back to work in Vegas, you know, where I don't have to travel on the road. And, and he was like, yeah, bro. Hey, you know, awesome. And in, to this day, almost 10 years later, he's still one of my good friends and sponsors. That's awesome. And, uh, yeah. So I, I get, I get a job and become the chief instructor for dream racing in 2012.
0: Then obviously the, the, the big kind of change that probably spiraled not spiraled probably set the the tumbler moving to go in a different direction was the fact that your dad, awesome guy. I've known him for again, as long as I've known you get yeah. he a heart, had a heart attack
1: in 2015. That brings you back into the family business. And if I can back up you a little bit more, cause I'm a Please. very honest person, Please do. you know, Please in do. 2012, uh, the same time I get my job with dream racing, my mom suffers a mental breakdown and mental yeah. and start suffering from mental illness. And, um, God, man, that was that was one of the most challenging things in my life. My mom had been living in Utah for 10 years by herself. My parents weren't even divorced. They weren't even separated. That was always the weird thing to try to explain to people. People were like, oh, oh, your parents are divorced. I'm like, actually, no. I think the reason they're not divorced is because they don't live together. So the, what happened was my parents bought a house in Utah to go semi-retire. But then the, the the economy collapsed. My dad and I got stuck living in Vegas trying to pay a house payment of, of a house that we bought to keep – well, my mom's living in Utah alone, because that's what she wanted to live closer to her dad, my grandfather, my dad wanted to move up there. So my dad and I are living in Vegas. It's only a two hour drive away, two and a half hours. My dad's commuting on weekends. And, and then, you know, their relationship starts to obviously kind of fall apart a little bit. And, and, and we, we can't pay all the bills. And my mom's up there, my dad's telling her she needs to move back. And, and, you know, make a long story long and just to be honest about things yeah she suffers a, a uh, she su- suffers a um, mental breakdown a mental illness and went a couple years without even speaking to her she like kind of like completely detached herself from the family and 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 a lot of people don't even know about that man and that was yeah. that was one of the most difficult things in my life and then I, I lose my grandfather in 2012 also who was kind of the monarch of the family and and um, and and all meanwhile not talking to my mother and and it was this really you know terrible kind of serious situation and and that was 2012 and then and then 2013 14 I just try to live my life man and um and then yeah and then in 2015 my dad has a heart attack and triple bypass that almost that almost took his life
0: so you come back and and you know jump into the family business kind of take over for your dad to a certain extent you guys are you know obviously coming to the rescue to a certain extent doing your yeah. doing what you your due diligence as, as a son to get in there right it's interesting you talked about kind of you know a lot of people didn't know about kind of the things that happened with your dad and of course with with your mom and then you know all of all of us in the motorsports industry guys that have known you for a long time, get the, you know, walk, see the Facebook post and the Instagram post of, Hey, by the way, I'm going somewhere for a couple of months. Um, <laughs> don't worry. I'll be back. But talk Maybe. about cryptic. Talk <laughs> about, I, I may be back. Uh, we we end up finding out that you join uh, the ABC reality show Castaways. Yeah, uh, Essentially yeah. you marooned on an Island defend for yourself, Got to make decisions on: Are you going to explore the islands? Where are you going to stay? Seek out the other castaways. (laughs) Develop relationships, whatever it may be, dude. You, you, you went off the grid,
1: dude. um, Some people have said it best. It's actually, it was, um, God, it was a go carter. It was um, uh, Rick, uh, God, the Canadian. Uh, I'm blanking on his last name right now. Tall, tall Rick. uh, oh, Rickman, Rickman, Rickman. Oh, Steve Rickman. Steve, Steve Rickman. Steve Rickman go. always gives me, I love the guy and we're, you know, great friends and he's a fan, you know, and he, and he was yep. like, oh, just one of the most jascal things ever. Of course you <laughs> went to go survive on a deserted island. Why wouldn't true you? Enough. True <laughs> enough, true enough, true
2: enough. Yeah. So,
1: so yeah, I mean in 2014, you know, just move around, like I start skydiving because and, yep. and, and that was like filling a void in my life. That's why I became a skydiver to be completely honest. I had a, I had a passion for aviation, for flying, you know, I was kind of an aviation geek and, and became a skydiver out of almost out of like, I, I end up breaking up with my girlfriend of almost 10 years, the same girl, Christy, who, you know, whose father had passed away and we, we go our separate ways. And, you know, I'm kind of like, ah, you know, life again, what am I going to do? And, start skydiving. And then shortly after my dad has a heart attack, the business is going to go completely bankrupt. It still supports my mom and my dad. And I'm like, okay, I got to step in, take it out of bankruptcy. And again, even then I'm still trying to work and I'm doing, I'm traveling, I'm doing everything, man. And then, and then, yeah, you just fast forward two years, and um abc contacts me and they found me through uh, dave larson of all people just randomness he knew the woman that was the casting agent because she was dating dave larson's son (laughs) dude right it's like what it's just a twisted world man i know so dave larson's son was dating this woman laura who was the casting agent and one of the producers for the show and she goes hey i need like a race car driver and or extreme athlete for this new show and dave because i stay relevant I stay I stay I communicate with people I share my life you know and and I try to inspire people and and uh and so this you know Dave had stayed you know followed me on Facebook the guy knew me around the same age that you knew me from the 90s you know and and, now we talk about Dave Larson
0: the racing promoter yeah
1: well remember this I told you about me going to the the
0: Sober launch right Akonimaki Maria and Well, Dave Larson was with me. Dave Larson, I
1: I had no idea, dude.
0: Because Maria was very close with Dave, because Maria contacted both me and Dave to talk about Carters, who were the big Carters. And so,
1: odds, man. Yeah,
0: let's put this. There's a good story about Dave Larson and I drinking too much Red Bull. (laughs) <laughs> at a tiny bar in Salzburg, Austria.
1: And it was, that's a long story. Dude, but I, I see. Compare. I didn't even know, man. I feel bad. Like yep. I feel bad. Cause I know Dave, I know his face, but well. I, w- I wouldn't have called him a good friend. You know, like he was just no. that guy that I knew that, you know, followed my life. And he reaches out to me on Facebook, um, March of last year. So like what, just over a year and a half ago, he reaches out to me and he goes, Hey, Matt, Uh, I got this woman uh, she wants to talk to about this show, and I blow him off, totally blew him off, didn't even answer his message, I felt like a jerk, you know, I just, I was busy, I was, I was, I was working, and he writes me again, he goes, Matt, I need you to take a look, take a look at this, the producer's a friend of mine, would you please consider it? And then uh, make a long story long. I get on the phone with this woman and she goes, Hey, I'm casting for a new TV show. I can't tell you what network, but it's going to be amazing. It's going to be a chance to document your life and tell your life story. But there's always a big, but (laughs) it's going to involve surviving on a deserted island without food or shelter for up to two months. And I was like, Oh yeah, no, you definitely got the wrong, not interested, (laughs) completely turned it down. I was like, Nope. sorry. really? Yeah. Oh, I have text messages. I literally said, Hey, thank you. But no, thank you. I'm not interested. I take, care okay. of my mother my father my yeah. brother I, I i'm just sorry you got the wrong guy you know i'm, yep. I'm a race car driver from las vegas athlete i mean I'll, I'll get a pedicure once a month if i'm feeling like it you know i was like <laughs> you got the wrong dude <laughs> and uh and so they kept pers- and that was actually probably the worst thing i could have said there because they were like oh you're this guy's perfect then this guy's the guy <laughs> that's is <laughs> exactly right. who we want yeah. and they kept pursuing me and um call it divine intervention spirit i don't care what you believe in there was something else going on you know like i went to my mother i went to my father and i was like hey this is what's going on wholeheartedly believing they would say like no we can't have you go do that and both my parents um you know the most important people in my life the 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 reason i am everything i am in life everything i have in life you know stems from them obviously and i said what do you guys think and they said you got to do this we don't know why but you need to do this And I said, yes, and I went ahead and did it.
0: Yeah. I, well, obviously you show up, you showed up at the supernets. Did less, you not? Yeah, exactly.
1: Let less just come. So it's pretty amazing yeah. to think, man. And this is part of my story. Even it's going to be an emotional year for me because I am an emotional, more so an emotional human being than I've ever been in my life. I'm, I've always been emotionally aware and spiritually aware. And especially ever since becoming a skydiver and stuff like that. And, you know, just experiencing more than most people in life. I've been lucky yep. enough to do that. But, you know, when I show up to the supernets this year, it will literally be exactly 365 days from the day that I came home from a jungle, almost starving to death, literally in kidney failure, 32 pounds lighter than I am right now. You know?
0: <laughs> yeah. When you, I know when you showed up on, on the up in my PA booth, uh, I gave you a big hug, and I'm like, man, we got to get you a hot dog or something. Because, yeah. <laughs> You were skinny, uh,
2: yeah. but you know what? The
0: funny thing is to see you then, and the and the, the talks that you and I have had between then and now, and even between then and before the show actually came out. Um, You know, obviously, I watched it with my girlfriend Alicia, who's such a good friend of yours. We watched it. You know, we were all over it. So emotional to watch that, man. I, you know, it's almost crazy that you would have said
1: no to it. In the end, it, it was this amazing experience for you. It was the, man, it's upsetting because nobody will truly ever understand. And you get it. I mean, you got to see it and you understand a little bit deeper than most people. Yeah. But um, I'll never be able to explain to people what being completely, you know, and I love when people are like, oh, you're not really alone. There was camera guys. I'm like, look, I had one camera guy that was there maybe six hours a day. I was alone. When I say alone, there was no, at one point I found out later, there was nobody within five miles of me. I mean, not even other cast members. I was alone in the jungle about 15 hours a day. And oh man, you're, you're, and there's nothing to, at night, the nights are long, man. I mean, it's like, you're on the equator. It, you know, the sun goes down at like six and it comes back up at six. You are alone in the darkness of the jungle. And it was a jungle for 12 hours. And you, you have no light. You don't have a, you don't, I didn't have a flashlight. I didn't, I couldn't even write. You can't read. You have nothing other than your mind. Yeah, your thoughts, right? Man, that can be a weird place, a a difficult place to be for that long. I was alone for eight days before even finding other human beings. And, And what I try to tell people, let me tell you about being alone, man. I wasn't lonely. I was just alone. I didn't even care to find other people. And when you had a camera guy, you were more alone than if you were alone because there was a human being standing there every day looking at you. And you couldn't talk to him. You couldn't communicate wow. with him. He wouldn't talk to you. And that made you even more alone than being alone. You know, because there was yeah. a guy that knew things. You, you know, God, there's a freaking human being there to talk to. And you can't, yep. talk, and you can't talk to him. Um,
0: in if the people that didn't watch the show, those that may have, uh, you eventually found your way to a couple of guys yeah. that were, and I'll say it, were they just were, jackasses. They were dicks. Yeah, <laughs> They were dicks. They were just assholes. They a were A bag of them. It was, It's. it seemed like they kind of, they kind of came back around the other side, but then you went, of course, across the water to Kenzie and Robbie. And, uh, I, I, people that didn't obviously can't take the context of this, having not watched it, but man, it was just when you got over there, just, I, I was, we were, I was part of the guys that were on Twitter afterwards going, don't go back Matt don't, don't go, go back. back stay with them right it, because
1: we could we could have a whole podcast for two hours just about the show you know uh, bet, it's so complex yeah. but let me lay some groundwork for people that are probably wondering this wasn't a game show this wasn't a competition it no. was a documentary about people's lives it was the real life version of lost for yeah, there was no winning or losing right there was no winning or losing but I'm going to be completely honest so people know like what and w- to explain why people behave the way they did and what my mission was there my motive was like out of morbid curiosity of life. Like I wanted to know how I would act, how I would behave, what I would do. You know, there was compensation. There was money at the end. If you decided to stay until rescue day, if you did, everybody got paid the same, but it wasn't a competition and it wasn't a very large sum of money. You know, we're talking, you know, quite a bit less than a hundred thousand dollars after taxes. I mean, yeah, Yeah. sure. It's good money. It'd be like a year salary, but it was to me. i had even told production. I'm like, guys, I'm not going to stay. I told them I am not going to stay to the end. My body means so much more to me than a TV show. The money at the end of it isn't even enough for me to want to die in the jungle. There's malaria out there. There's, I mean, there was a lot of deadly things going on out there, and it was scary. Yep. And there was a lot of risk in that aspect. And I was like, guys, if I start to feel off or or my body starts to like dwindle down, I'm I'm tapping out, guys. And I, I said, I hope you're not ups- I hope you guys aren't going to be upset with me when I quit or leave early. Like I'm not going to stay. I'm just here to experience it, and and I'm not going to stay for possibly two months, you know. And they just looked at me like sure bro whatever you say man it's your whatever yeah Yeah, whatever you say dude and and then one of the producers wrote down and this was emotional he wrote down on 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 um on the official like journaling for the show matt will make it to the end and and that was emotional because people saw something in me that i didn't even see in myself and Uh and an interesting thing (laughs) about the jungle man there's no mirrors so I didn't know how bad I was getting. So like on day 31, when I was almost dying, literally, I, I didn't realize it, you know, and, and then by that point I had come so far, I wasn't willing to give up. I wasn't willing to quit. And, um and there was, you know, I went through a lot of emotions, man. A lot of emotional stuff happened out there.
0: Now, uh, let's just, before we jump back into racing a little bit, one quick, obviously relationship you developed with, with Kenzie and, uh, and Robbie, how, is that, You stay in
1: contact with them? Yeah, yeah, and even even Rich and Sawyer, man. Like, yeah, you know, I felt bad for them. It was a it was a tough go for them on the show because they weren't they lost a little bit of humanity, man. They were trying to survive, and I didn't even hate them. I didn't hate them as much as people did on the TV show. I understood where they were coming from. It wasn't fun to to survive with them, but but I but I didn't hate them. I understood, you know, when I asked for food and they told me no. I wasn't like, Oh, these guys suck. I was actually, swear to God, man. First thought in my head was, Oh dude, this is going to be hard. I yeah. didn't hate them. I was actually they like, made, yeah. they, they made an alliance, right? They made yeah. their alliance. They, yeah. they they were bros. They found each yeah. other on day one, essentially. Yeah. And they lived side by side in a shelter for eight days and formed a bond, a brotherhood. And I was a skinny little outsider that showed up, you know, <laughs> yeah. and these guys weren't willing to really help. You know, they, they were just kind of like, Oh man, here's another stomach to help feed and this sucks. And and yeah, and yeah and then I find Robbie and Kinsey. I swim across a mile and a half of water to find <laughs> Robbie and Kinsey, and they just had a different view on life yeah. on things. You know, they were just they were my vibe. They were my yeah. tribe. They were my people. That they were who I belonged with. You know, um, and I still keep in touch with all of them. Uh, me, awesome. me, Rich Sawyer, Robbie, Kinsey. We still all talk, and and we've even hung out since the show, which is amazing.
0: Now, off the top of my, I should have wrote it down, but top of my head, the the uh, the older lady that had your they had your suitcase, had your Ten. bag.
1: Yep. She's, she, you haven't met her yet. She posted I, on your Facebook page. Dude, I still haven't met... What, Let's what is get it? her to...
2: And this let's scare the
1: supernats. I dude, we that's not a bad idea, dude. Let's that is a really Nets. good idea. She was so she let's let's tell the uh, people listening. She was yep. sixty three years. So you were allowed to pack a bag like you were going on an island vacation. You couldn't okay. pack survival items. It had to be a very small bag. You could pack some food, some snacks, but it had to be true to your life. You know, if you try to pack too much of something, they they would pull it out anyways, and they rummaged through your bags, they tore stuff up, and it was like a plane crash. It was like lost. You, you got yep. to pack a bag. But there was no guarantee that you would find your bag. And of course, I never got my bag. I nope. got some backpack that some kid packed that quit on day one. And I had a bag of Oreos and some dirty clothes. That's literally all I found. And I was pissed. I wanted to quit right then because I was like, oh, this sucks. I'm not going to make suck. it. And, uh, and and Terry, the 63. 63- two-year-old woman had my bag and and this and she was a an amazing spiritual human being that knew what me. a badass oh, oh my she God. was amazing she, she was a bad she lived to tell the audience too she freaking lived alone for like 28 days yep. surviving off my bag and, until she finally decided to go home you know she was like on day 33 she was like you know my journey's done here i'm ready to go yep. home that's it and, and we were connected this woman knew me and had never met me and she journaled to me and talked about me and man, that was, that was emotional. And, and I've, we've only connected on Facebook. We've never met yet. So, okay, let's jump forward here. Now at this, actually, you know what? Let's take one quick break and come back quick
0: break folks here on book it with Rob Howden. Great interview, great conversation with Matt Jaskell. After this break, we're going to talk about why he's doing a bunch of racing and what his plans are for the future. Stick with us more to come. Hey everybody.
2: This is Chris Wheeler, director of motorsports for Bell racing USA. For the 2018 Scusa Pro Tour, be sure to check out our partner's PSL karting for all of your on-site needs from helmets, visors, accessories, and all hardware so you can stay safe on the racetrack. New for 2018, the CMR KC7 Carbon,
0: the first of its kind, the only carbon helmet in the world, approved by the CIK for youth use. Check it out at PSL Karting, and thanks for tuning in to EKN Live. Welcome back to a brand new podcast here on the EKN Radio Network. My name is Rob Howden. My new Book It conversational podcast, uh, Matt Jaskill joining me here. longtime Supercars USA driver. Uh, almost made it to Formula One. Badass driver. Every time he comes to the Supernats of 18, he's done. He's always shown well. Uh, Matt, you obviously have a, an amazing experience uh, at Castaway, the, uh, the the reality TV show. No doubt about it changed who you are, changed some relationships you have. But you come off of this off of this show, and you're you, you've been getting behind the wheel a lot this year I in
1: have. karting, yeah, which has been cool. I mean, I mean, and I think a lot of people that know me would would say um, that you know the show changed me to say the least. Yeah. I mean, I think starving in a jungle for 41 days <laughs> can change anybody. I
0: do something. Yeah. I, I
1: would hope it would change people, you know. And and um, you know, my life has been a crazy journey. And uh, and something I I learned so some big things that I learned out there in the jungle was that you know life doesn't always work out the way that you intend obviously but that but that doesn't mean that life can't come around full circle life just doesn't happen maybe in the time frame that you expect it to happen um so you know i have been distraught you know the last 3 years of my life and i lost 3 3 years of my life towards motorsports when my dad's heart attack happened I was left with trying to help take care of the family and, and clean up a lot of messes, including IRS tax debt and, and foreclosed homes that it, our house had been in foreclosure for nine fricking years, man, you know, we were always in risk of losing the house that we were living in, you know and, and um, racing was just not priority but I always try to stay relevant. I was racing yep. some off roads. I did Vegas Torino mint 400. I would do the Supernats. I showed up to the super Nats with Alex Rossi, the Indy 500 champion, because I was the one that taught him how to fricking drive when he was a kid. <laughs> and, and so I was always trying to stay relevant and, and do stuff to show like, I'm still driving and then show up and be like, yo, I can still drive. You know, it's not like mm-hmm. I forgot. I haven't gone anywhere. You know, I'm still here. I'm just not doing it as much as I want to be, you know? And, um, so I go on castaways, I come off the show and even production asked me like, what are you going to do with life now? And I was having a hard time, man. So I came off the show last November and then, you know, was kind of riding that, that high of like, my God, I just went through this life-changing experience in December. And then January by February, I was having that post event depression, you know, like kind of like, wow, you know, what, what do I do? do do? What do I do now with life, man? What am I supposed, what am I supposed to do? And, um, you know, and what's my Dharma, as some people would say, if you believe in that, like, that's like a Buddha expression, you know, what's my purpose in life. Mm -hmm. And, and so I, um, I production actually asked me ironically, at the same time, like, man, well, you know, what are you going to do? And I said, I'm still young, man, I'm only 33 at the time. And I'm like, I, there's no reason I can't have a career still, you know, and and whether it's sports cars, whether, you know, and and then I was like, you know, I, this might sound crazy, but there's something that has to happen. It has to happen. Like there's no way, no reason it shouldn't happen. And that's to race the Indy 500. And and it's, it would be something completely different than than what it was 10 years ago or 15 years ago. You know, like when I was trying, when I, you know, just, just 10 years ago, just 10 years ago, I was racing Indy lights, you know, and, and trying yeah. to make it to the 500. And, but it was about proving yourself and being a race car driver and being the best. This would be about completing a life journey. You know, and and it would be about closing a circle for my friends and family and and the people. You know, that was something, man, Rob. That was emotional when I was sitting on the in the island, man. I there was many nights, dude, that I would just sit there and cry, and not like you think, just tears. You know, just tears right now because yeah. you have nowhere to go. You're in your head, and I just thought, and it just would hit me like waves, man. Just how many people have have been involved in my life, man, that have been... There's so many fucking people that have helped my career and not just my parents. I mean, there's so many people that have supported me. And what upset me was that they all believed in me, but I didn't even believe in myself enough. You know, it was always head down, trying to find money. Um, Something else that I, an epiphany that I had is that I was never proud of myself, man. I always wanted to make other people proud. I always wanted other people to be proud of me. It even hurt relationships, you know, with, with, with my girlfriend, you know, like, of course it would. I I was never proud of myself. I was always, you know, you're only as good as the next race and you got to keep moving forward. And it wasn't until what I went through out there in the jungle that I came home and I was, I could look around with a a sense of being awake and being like, my God, I have done, I have lived 60 years of life in 30 years. I have done more than most people have ever done in a lifetime. And I'm only in my 30s, you know, and, and there's still so much more ahead. And, and I, and I, I felt I was upset because I, it wasn't right. Uh, you know, people had believed in me, and and those, and I, and I was upset with myself. You know that I had kind of not let those people down, but I was like, you know, I I need to be proud of what I've accomplished. But I want to complete this journey for everybody, not just myself. It truly is about everybody that's helped my career. So yeah, man, I have been trying to. I mean I'm in the I'm in the best shape of my life man literally I mean I am more fit than I've ever been and mm-hmm. and uh, as a as an athlete which I think happens I know a little bit about physiology mm-hmm. with the body and as in my at the age I'm at like I think I'm just now getting into my stride it might be a little bit harder in a go-kart but as you know driving any type of race car man I mean look at Scott Dixon the guy's 38 yeah, years old and just won his yeah. fifth title you know There's a um, lot there's lots
0: of ex- there's lots of examples of of guys that are doing it uh, Tony I
1: whoever it is you're doing right. it in and, your and 30s or 40s yeah and they're still you know, you're right. And they're still yep. crushing it, you know, and Crush it's like, it. exactly. and, and uh, not just hanging in there, crushing it, you know? Yep. And, um, and so I was like, you know, I, I got to get back behind the wheel of a race car. And so, yeah, man. So, so doing the super Nats isn't just about doing the super Nats. It's about preparing. And it's about, I mean, not to sound cliche, but people was, have always asked me, Jasko, what are you training for? You're not racing anymore. Why are you training so hard? And I would literally say, I, this was one of the things I said years ago. I was like, I'm just training for life, man. I'm just trying to be ready. I'm trying to be ready because, I always felt that something had to happen and and so now this this journey this detour of life has led to me trying to get back behind the wheel of a race car and um and something that you know you and i even talk i mean let's be honest you and i talked about it even before the podcast that uh, that i'm working on and and there's not a lot i can say right now and it, 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 right now it's still just a pipe dream um because we're waiting on some on some certain things that we're you know trying to go through the motions of doing but yes i am trying to to race the indy 500 And, um, and it would be a massive undertaking, but my God, what a story that would be, huh?
0: Well, you know, I, the way I look at that, you know, when you, when you're spending those lonely nights and by not as much lonely, but by nights by yourself on the Island, that's when you start, you know, you have that self-awareness, you have that, you're able to audit yourself of who you are and what means what to you and what you want to accomplish and who you want to be. Right. And, And obviously you, that's, that's what I'm hearing from you. You're, you're getting a better feel of of who you want Matt Jaskell to be as you work your way into your, into your thirties. First and foremost, the skill sets is, is still there. I think everything you've done at the Supernats, when you've jumped behind the wheel of a cart and having not driven hardly at all, and you're able to match the speed of the factory drivers from, from Italy. That's to me, that just speaks absolute volumes. That says that the skill is there. It's never gone anywhere. You're in the best shape of your life. It's going to be great to have you back at the Super Nats for sure. I'm, I'm sure you're going to be looking to try to win a race or get on the podium, whatever it may be. A win, I think, would be badass. Yeah, 20, <laughs> 20 years uh, since your uh, your victory uh, in 1998 in ADCC Junior. But the bottom line is, uh, you know what, dude? It's, it's about having a dream. And, and like you said, lots of people have supported you. They've done it uh, without any need for anything back they've done it because they believed in you and it's good to hear that you're believing in yourself i love that thanks
1: and um we've even talked to sam schmidt you know like i mean I, w- I went to people i respect to to tell them like hey man is this stupid this is a dumb idea what i'm trying to do and i went to jimmy vassar i went to james hinchcliffe i went to sam schmidt and i was like this is what i'm trying to do and i said not only is it not a not a stupid idea you need to try you need to make this happen and and we'll help you do it and um and it is, it, it would be a story about like, you know, life come full circle that no, and, it, and it, it's almost like Rocky meets Cinderella man meets second chance story. You know, it's all yeah. built into one. Sensei versus student, you know, with Rossi. Yeah. I, mean, I have a unique story that not a lot of people have because of the people that have supported me. And 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 because of myself also, because of keeping good relationships and being a good person and and just always staying on the right path. I always grinded it out, man. I never went down a bad road. I mean, even when I wasn't racing, I was always just staying fit, staying in shape. I was never out being stupid and partying, and I was just always trying to be just to be a, a good human being and a good person to represent my family and friends that believed in me. I always wanted to maintain that, you know. And and I've worked so hard, you know. And uh, and the supernets is is a is a is a big deal to me, and it means Rob, and it means more to me than you know. For you to say that about me showing up to the Super Nets because that's what I've always tried to say you know say to people and where i'm proud of myself is i show up with guys that race go-karts for a living and i go and i out qualify them and i drive with them and i'm like shit imagine if i was behind a wheel all year long you know um and that's what i tried to do this year you know i tried to to go do a few even though it's nothing compared to the factory guys like you said i was you know showing up to la kc the last couple races running up front with billy winning you know even winning the kz you know open class the other weekend and and uh running the Honda class, and I'm gonna it looks like I'm gonna double up and do double duty again like I did with Rossi two years ago. It looks like I'm gonna <laughs> run KZ and Honda. And to me, it's gonna be kind of a tribute to Honda to you know, 20 years since I won the Honda yeah. 80 yeah. junior class. Twenty years uh that I've been racing for CRG primarily. I've raced for a few different chassis manufacturers throughout throughout the year, but was always connected to CRG and still have yeah. a relationship with them, which I think says a lot also after 20 years. And agreed. It's a it's a cool story, you know.
0: Well, listen, man, we're a couple of weeks away from it. We'll get this podcast up on the EKN Radio Network as soon as we can. But, bud, what I want to do, if we can, after the Super Nats, if you get firm more stuff up on this Indy 500 uh, potential program, we got to talk again, get another podcast. rolling. I got more questions for you. But uh, all I can say is thank you so much for taking the time to sit down with us here, kind of opening your heart, opening your life up a little bit for us. we got a really good look at it, of course, through, through Castaways. But I, I think there's – I'm in a, part of a huge group that wants to see that same kind of thing happen, that same notoriety, that same uh, opportunity happen behind the wheel of something. And you know, whether it's the Indy 500 you spin off that to a potential career in sports car racing, you deserve it, bud. you, you have the skills, you have the opportunity. You just kind of got shortchanged a little bit here. And, uh, I respect the way you've lived your life, so I, I hope that uh, things go well in the future.
1: Yeah, man, and it's uh, it, and it means a lot to me. Just to, again, th- you are a big part of that. Like to to have known you for 20 years, you know, right. I'll never forget a moment of you walking down. You had a camera; you were just taking photos. And was at a WK race in Illinois, man, 1998. And okay. and you walked by me, and I just won the race. I think I, I think I locked up the championship, and you just were sort of like, "Hey, man, good job, Jaskell, You know, and it was just like, "Oh, wow, that's so cool." And uh, to <laughs> just to have you around, man, and, and to still be able to call you a friend. And and everything you're doing and God man it's all part of the story and it's it, and I hope you know that it, it goes with emotion for me to to even be able to to talk to you like this right now so thank you
0: well man. we're we're both both very blessed and I, I feel the same way Matt thank you thank you so much for joining me buddy thanks man ladies and gentlemen my first ever book it with Rob Howden. and man thrilled and, and blessed to be able to talk to Matt Jasko and I, I give you guys a little insight into the journey he has had over his 34 years. And uh, obviously lots more to come. We're going to be seeing Matt on track at the 22nd running of the SuperCarts USA Supernationals 20 years down the road from his amazing win for SSC Racing at the Las Vegas Karting Center in the ADCC Junior category. That was the second running of the Supernats. Number 22 coming up, and of course, we'll be there with EKN Trackside Live. We're going to make sure we get Matt Jaskell back on if more kind of develops on his uh, focus to try to get to the Indianapolis Motor Speedway in 2019. I, for one, hope that is the case. Folks, again, thank you so much for joining me. First ever Book It with Rob Howden. Hope you enjoyed it. Feel free to comment below on Facebook. Let us know if there's anybody else you want me to get a chance to talk to. Folks, I'm Rob Howden. Bye for now.